Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. So welcome again to Christ Pacific Church. My name is Peter. I'm the lead pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, then um, I would love to meet you. Maybe after worship, uh, come say hello. I'm going to be looking for you if I haven't met you. And uh, I'm told that uh, I'm relatively friendly, so... Um, no fears. If, uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to have a conversation maybe over coffee out on the patio with you. So I look forward um, to that. Lots of opportunities for connections uh, around here, which is really great. I hope that you will um, take a step and get a little more connected than you have been in the past, and uh, we'll be the church that way. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to um, make you aware of also uh, before we dive into the word uh, this morning, uh, the first is um, yeah, I don't see him here right now, but um, you know this guy who plays guitar here? Yeah, his name is his name is Paul. Um, so uh, last week, Paul asked Don to marry him, and she said yes. so exciting. So um, celebrate with them if you see them. I think Don is probably um, leading in kids' church right now, and um, apparently uh, one sermon on Sunday morning is enough for Paul, so he, he already heard it at the nine o'clock um, service. That's great. Um, hey, other uh, news in the life of our church. Um, many of you, I know Don Trustick. He's been a long time a foundational person in the life of our church. Uh, many of you know that he has not been well for many months. Uh, last Sunday, Don graduated to the next life. He uh, went home to be with Jesus. He, um, as I will say over and over again, he is not dead. He's just not here any longer. Uh, I got to be with Joyce and the family last Sunday and was able to... Um, to say a few things to them, including this. How wonderful is it that the God Don loved so much uh, called Don home on a Sunday, on Resurrection Day, on the day of the Lord, the day that we remember and celebrate the resurrection life that Jesus has given for us. And that's the resurrection life into which Don is now fully alive. Don no longer has hope. Don lives in the reality of what he has hoped for all of his life. And so we're going to remember and celebrate Don's life, Don's faith, um, in a service on the 19th of March. That's a couple Saturdays from now at 11 a.m. Uh, so you are invited to come and remember Don and celebrate the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ into which Don has, has entered Don is such a, a, such a great guy, as many of you know. He has been here forever, he and his wife, Joyce. And um, Don was actually a part of the team, the committee, um, who 35 years ago called Pastor Gary 
to be the pastor here. So Gary Watkins was the pastor, uh, our former pastor, and um, he served here for 30 years. And, and Don was a part of that team that, that called Gary here 35 years ago, um, almost now. Don was also an elder, and, and he was very involved in our buildings and grounds, which meant he was one of the primary guys who made sure that this place didn't fall over. And, um, and we're really grateful for that, that it has not fallen over. And uh, Don, I remember uh, most recently, every Sunday after worship, he would go around the entire campus, every floor, every room, and check and lock every door to secure this place every Sunday. While the rest of us had had our cup of coffee on the patio and went home, Don was making the rounds. Why? Just because he loved this church, he loved his Lord, and he wanted to serve. Super cool. Well, he's with, uh, he's with the one he loves, uh, loved most now. So we're going to celebrate his life. If you know Joyce, uh, give her a hug next time you see her or, or shake her hand, whatever seems appropriate. Um, the other thing that is on um, my mind and heart, I'm sure it is for you as well, is just what's going on in Ukraine. They're like, what on earth? What are we supposed to do? Um, I don't know. So let's pray about it. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, one of the first things you said when you came was, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And we know that Partly what that means is the kingdom of God has not yet fully arrived. That things are not yet as they are supposed to be. That your kingdom of justice and mercy and grace and, holy, and, and wholeness and peace, your kingdom is close at hand. It's very near. It's breaking in, but it has not yet fully arrived. And so things are not as they should be. And that's so clear to us, especially this last week in Ukraine. And so we pray, oh God, that your kingdom would advance. We know, God, that the world is changed when women and men are changed from the inside out. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would break into the minds and hearts of more and more people across the globe and that you might begin to make more and more of that peace that characterizes your kingdom because you are capturing for yourself more and more peacemakers. We ask for your mercy, O oh God. We ask for your kindness and your goodness and your provision. We ask for those in Ukraine who are afraid who have lost so much already, who are confused, who are maybe angry with you, we pray for them, God, and we ask that you would surround them with your peace, that you would bring this conflict, this war to an end, that you would stop the craziness, that you would rescue us from ourselves, Jesus, we pray 
um, on behalf of those, especially today in Ukraine and the surrounding areas, we pray on behalf of those who maybe just don't have it in them to pray today. They don't have the capacity to pray or for whatever reason, they're just so wrecked they can't even pray. We pray on their behalf. We pray for them. We ask for your peace and mercy to rain down. God, we know that the kingdoms of men come and go. The kingdoms of men rise and fall, but your kingdom will last forever because you, King Jesus, will reign forever. And we, um, we stand on the sureness of that reality. We stand on that footing, that foundation. And we ask that you would make that real, especially in Ukraine today, this week. For we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I have felt that um, the last couple of weeks, um, that when we gather to worship and when we pray, um, it is a privilege, obviously, that we get to do this and that we can be here today. Um, And I have felt as though uh, part of what we get to do, part of what God calls us to do is, is to worship on behalf of those who can't right now and to pray on behalf of those who can't and declare the hope of the gospel, perhaps on behalf of those who are finding it really difficult to declare the hope of the gospel. Um, So today when we sing and listen and pray and worship, uh, let's do that not just as this community, but as a larger community together with our brothers and sisters across the globe. We're going to talk about the wilderness today. And obviously what's going on in the Ukraine is a wilderness. And it's often in the challenging wilderness situations that we find ourselves in that we are most significantly formed. That God most significantly forms us to be the women and men which he has created and redeemed us to become. It's often in those wilderness seasons or those wilderness experiences where this happens most significantly. I think it was the winter, the uh, January of 1998, when my friend Randy and I made our way from Spokane, where we uh, called home, up to Banff in Alberta, Canada. We uh, headed up there for a backcountry ski trip into this place called Um, Egypt Lake. This is a map of the location, a topographical map, a little circle on the right. I know you can't really see it, but that's the trailhead. And uh, the little circle on the left is the Egypt Lake Hut. That was our destination. The little red line between the two that squiggles across the landscape there, that's the path we took on our cross-country skis. It was about nine miles to ski in, and it goes about 3,000 feet up and over Healy Pass. So you get to Egypt Lake Hut, which is right at the base of Pharaoh Peaks. Uh, this is a picture of me skiing in. Uh, it was really cold. 
It's January in Alberta. I mean, really cold. The coldest I have ever been. I remember the temperature that day because the temperature, the low temperature, or sorry, rather the high temperature in the village of Banff, which was warmer than where we were up on the mountain pass, uh, but the high temperature in the village of Banff was the temperature in which Celsius and Fahrenheit come together and meet. So you only have to remember one number, and it's 38 below zero. It was really cold. I had, in this picture, all of my clothes on. All the clothes that I brought for this winter camping experience, I had on, which is not really a good thing because I'm skiing my heart out. I've got, I don't know, 35 pounds of gear on my back. We're, you know, nine miles in, and I've got all my clothes on just to stay warm. Nothing is exposed. I've got a balaclava, like, over my face, ski goggles, because exposure in temperatures like this uh, in just a couple of minutes can lead to frostbite. It was freezing. This is a picture of me up on the pass, and as we were going up over Healy Pass, there was a, a, a beautiful view in between the clouds and, uh, and the snow, but there was a beautiful view, and so I took my camera out. Remember when we used to use those? <laughs> it was 1998. It was a camera. I took out of my backpack to take a picture, and you know, you, uh, you turn your camera on, and it goes, and the lens comes out, you know, you're ready to take a picture, it froze. My camera wouldn't even open, so I couldn't take a picture. This was my friend's camera taking a picture of this. Freezing. Uh, we made our way down Healy Pass, and uh, I'm not real good on cross-country skis, especially with weight on my back, and they're not really made for downhill skiing, these cross-country skis. And so as um, we made our way down, there was a lot of this happening. There was a lot of me in the snow, and the snow was like so deep and powdery and fluffy. Uh, when you fall, it's like really hard to actually get up. What do you, you know? I don't know if it was on this fall or if it was a different fall. I actually broke a pole. Um, you know, that's kind of a bummer when you're like nine miles in and it's 38 below zero and you have a broken pole, but not to worry because we had duct tape. <laughs> Never go anywhere without duct tape, but duct tape alone is not particularly helpful unless you also have chopsticks. We had chopsticks. Doesn't everyone bring chopsticks on backpacking or snow camping trips? I mean, how do you eat the rice and noodles without chopsticks, right? So uh, duct tape, chopsticks, fixed my broken pole. So after skiing in most of the day, been freezing, uh, we're nine miles in, it's starting to get dark. In fact, it did get dark. The moon is out. We could not find the cabin. Yeah, this is a problem. This is a big problem. In fact, we could not find the cabin. And so my friend Randy and I started making plans. We're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? So we start talking about what you know, how we're going to actually survive the night because it's 38 below zero. We don't know that yet. We just know it's really cold. It's freezing, and we can't find the cabin in which we're supposed to sleep. Well, um, thankfully, we, um, we were a little bit prepared. We had, a back, uh, we had a backup plan. We had brought an extra tent just in case, you know, the cabin was buried in snow or we couldn't find it. And so we're beginning to make plans. Okay, so we're just... Okay, we got like, we'll, we'll look for 45 more minutes, um, and then we're, we're going to have to stop. We're going to have to quit. We're going to set up the tent, and it's so cold. Like, we're, you know what? We're, we're going to see if we can zip our sleeping bags together, and you and I, buddy, we're going to sleep together in those sleeping bags because this is the only way we're going to stay warm enough tonight. I mean, it was desperate. Can you imagine that conversation? 
Well, we finally did find the cabin, thank goodness, so we didn't have to sleep in the same sleeping bag together. I mean, Randy and I are close, but not that close. We finally found the cabin, and uh, in the cabin there's a fireplace, so we started up a roaring fire. We burned a fire all night long to warm it up in the cabin. We actually um, took a couple of tables that were in the cabin, and we moved them right next to the fireplace, and then we slept on top of the tables because the higher you are, the warmer it is, right? Heat rises. And uh, it, it was warmer in the cabin than it was outside, but all night long, with a fire roaring in the cabin, it never got above freezing inside that cabin, right? It was 50 or 60 degrees warmer inside the cabin than it was outside, but it never got above freezing. The reason I know that is because in the morning when I woke up, all of the powdery snow that was on our boots and our clothes when we took our clothes, our um, jackets off, it was all still just powder on the bench and, and on, the, on the floor. Nothing had melted. It was freezing. It was an epic adventure. Add to that, on our drive home from Banff to Spokane, my wonderful Nissan Sentra hatchback that didn't have a fifth gear that worked. So, you know, he drives 70 miles an hour down the road at like 4,100 RPMs. It was an awesome car. Well, it broke down more. And so we had to knock on some nice Canadian, uh, uh, Canadian person's door, kind of late at night, get some help. It was an epic trip. But you know what? Those memories and those stories will live forever. In fact, I was just texting Randy uh, yesterday, and he's like, oh yeah, that trip we almost died on. <laughs> yeah, yes, that, that's the one. You know, that wilderness experience, it taught me a whole lot. It taught me um, quite a bit about preparedness. What would have happened if we hadn't thought ahead and brought an extra tent just in case? Taught me about survival. Taught me about making the best of it. Taught me about teamwork with my friend Randy, and it also taught me that I love sufferfests like this. Because that's what you call something like this. It's like a sufferfest. We're gonna go and we're gonna suffer together, and it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> you know, we, you and I, experience all kinds of wildernesses over the course of our life. And usually those wildernesses do not involve actual wilderness. They do not involve snow or mountains or forests or cabins that can't be found. They involve relationships and families and jobs and homes. And it's often through those challenging wildernesses that we are most significantly formed by God to become the women and men God has created us to become. We see this in Scripture. If we're awake to what God is doing in the world today, we see it in our own lives. We're going to talk for the next several weeks about how God forms us in the wilderness, how He shapes us, and that if we would open the eyes of our heart, if we would be awake to what God is doing in the wilderness, then we get a front row seat to how God is making us the men and women he has created us to become. The Israelites, they were formed as the people of God, perhaps most significantly um, in their challenging wilderness experience in the Sinai Desert on the Arabian Peninsula. This is a picture of that place. About 400 years before the Israelites were in this wilderness, they had become an enslaved people in the land of Egypt. 
And their slavery went from terrible to worse until finally the Lord used two guys named Moses and Aaron to basically go to Pharaoh in Egypt and demand, let my people go. So what did Pharaoh do? Well, of course he refused because Egypt's entire economic system depended upon the slave labor of the Israelites. Of course he's not going to let them go. Uh, Well, you know, God's not going to be denied. That's probably lesson number one today. So, what happens? Well, God brings nine plagues upon Egypt. And each one seems to get worse and worse. And after each one, again, God demands of Pharaoh, let my people go. And again and again, nine times, one after the other, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go free. And this is where we pick up the story. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 12, and we're nine plagues in, and we're about to experience the tenth plague, which is by far the worst. And it's through this tenth plague that God secures Israel's freedom from Egypt. So I'm going to read from Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13, then I'm going to skip down to verse 21 and read a few verses there as well. This is relatively long. I just want to invite you to enter into this story. It's also kind of difficult reading. Um, It's not necessarily, um, well, it's just a difficult story. But listen in. Uh, to this word from the Lord from Exodus chapter 12. You can follow along on the screens if you like. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household, If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. I told you it was a difficult reading. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then down in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. 
None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord you will give, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the Lord bowed down and worshiped. Notice how the parents of the children explained to the children what was going on. Um, I imagine that's quite a bit what Dean's going to talk about as he talks about how to cultivate faith in your children. Well, what happened next is precisely what the Lord said would happen. The Israelites are spared death because they had taken blood of lambs and they had put this blood on their doorposts. And so the houses with the blood of the lambs on them were spared death. I told you it was a difficult reading. All of the firstborn in Egypt die that night. And this tenth plague, the plague of death, this final warning from the Lord finally leads Pharaoh to let God's people go. And the Israelites begin, uh, they experience uh, freedom for the first time in 400 years. As the story goes on, the Lord ends up parting the Red Sea so that the Israelites can cross through it into the Sinai Desert Wilderness where they are finally free. And they're crossing through the Red Sea. It's a kind of baptism, actually. It's the baptismal waters of the Red Sea through which they go. They pass from slavery to freedom, from death to life. At this point, the Israelites, they've been set free from slavery in Egypt. They've gone through the, the baptism waters of the Red Sea, but they still have to go through a vast wilderness before arriving home. And it's in this wilderness, this challenging wilderness, that the people of God are formed most significantly. The Israelites, they wanted so badly to go home, to arrive in what the Bible calls the promised land. In fact, they were constantly complaining about not arriving there quickly enough. They sometimes assumed that because they appeared to be lost in the wilderness or because things were unclear or uncertain, they sometimes assumed that God had abandoned them out here in the wilderness. They complained constantly, especially to Moses and to Aaron. Why did you bring us out here? It got so bad in the minds of the Israelites that they actually longed to go back to Egypt where they were slaves. But it's here in the wilderness that the Lord formed them, prepared them, shaped their hearts, shaped their faith, shaped their character. You know, the Israelites' journey here through their Red Sea baptism and into the Sinai wilderness, this journey 
can actually be mapped onto Jesus' journey as well. And it can also be mapped onto our journey. In other words, we share very similar journeys. Let's think about Jesus to begin with. First of all, Jesus, he didn't need to experience freedom from slavery. He didn't need to experience freedom from sin, but he did receive the baptism of water. He was baptized by John the baptizer in the Jordan River. And then he was led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he suffered all sorts of things. I mean, imagine, he was hungry, he was lonely, he suffered exposure to the elements and most significantly the relentless temptations of the evil one. And then after this wilderness experience of Jesus himself, after he's formed in some significant ways, he then returns and begins his public ministry of announcing the presence of the kingdom of God and of healing those who are broken. And you know, our journeys can be mapped onto here as well. Right? When we come to faith in Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, oh, there's so much more that could be said about this. There's so much more I want to say, but I'm not going to talk for two hours this morning, I promise. But when we come to faith in Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, by whose blood we are rescued from slavery, we experience freedom. We enter into freedom, just as the Israelites did through the blood of the lambs, and we do through the blood of the Lamb. And in our baptism, our own version of crossing the Red Sea, right, we get baptized with the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. It's there that we acknowledge the freedom God has given us in Christ Jesus. It's there that we acknowledge that Christ is Lord and Savior, and He, and He alone, has set us free from slavery to sin. By the way, let me just give a cheap shout-out here to this exploring baptism class in a couple of weeks, on the 20th and the 27th. I hope you'll come if you're interested. If you'd like to get baptized, if you're like, I don't know if I've ever been baptized, or I know I have not been baptized, or I'm curious about baptism, come. We would love to talk with you about what this means and what it could mean for you. Well, getting baptized doesn't exempt us from the wilderness. Darn it. We've been set free from sin. You know, we've gone through the waters of baptized. We've symbolically been cleansed of all unrighteousness. But we also enter into this vast wilderness called life. And we too need to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. And it's often in a crucible of suffering or in the experiences of wildernesses in our lives. Just as iron must be submerged in the hot coals before it can be forged in given shapes, so also we, sometimes, we need to be put in the fire. God uses those fires, God uses those wilderness experiences to shape us. The challenge is, or the problem is, the wilderness sometimes looks like this, doesn't it? 
Where am I going? What is going on? What is happening? Where are you, God? Which way is up? Could I please get a true north reading somewhere here in the wilderness? I know that cabin is on the map, but I sure can't find it. And like, what about you? Like, what wilderness experiences have you had maybe recently? Or what wilderness experience are you in right now? Maybe it's a season. Maybe it's a particular experience. Maybe you're in a season of uncertainty. And that season of uncertainty is really requiring you to trust God like you never have before. Or maybe you're in a season that a St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. Where it feels as though God is absent. And you are yearning for, hungering and thirsting for just the presence of God more than you ever have before. Or maybe you're having health challenges or relational challenges or family challenges, whatever. What wilderness are you in now or maybe have you been in recently? And it's okay if you feel like, I'm not in the wilderness I feel like I'm in this wonderful place and enjoying all that God is doing in my life. That's wonderful. We celebrate with you. That's awesome. You know, you don't have to go looking for the wilderness. We probably shouldn't go searching out wilderness experiences. You know, oh God, please send me into a context that will be very difficult so that I can suffer and therefore grow as a human being and as a disciple. We probably shouldn't do that. But you know what? We don't have to be afraid of the wilderness. We don't have to arrange our lives such that our ultimate priority is just to avoid pain or to avoid the wilderness or to avoid suffering. We don't have to be afraid of the wilderness because it's actually in the wilderness where God often shapes us the most. And that's a good thing. God's formation of our character, God's formation of our faith. And in the coming weeks, we are going to be exploring more in this sermon series that I'm just calling Formed in the Wilderness. We're going to see how the Lord forms his people in a variety of ways, often in the wilderness. We're going to see how the Israelites, how they learned to trust the Lord as their expedition guide. You know, when you head out into the wilderness, it's a good idea to have someone who knows the way and has been there before and knows what's going on. And sometimes when we're in the wilderness, there is someone who is qualified to be that, and it's the living God. Do we trust him to be our expedition guide? We're going to see that the Israelites learned to look to God to fight their battles. That God was their warrior. That yes, they had to participate. That yes, they had to show up. They had to arrive. They had to partner with God. But ultimately, their battles were won by the living God. We're going to see how the Lord provided for them wilderness regulations. You know, if you do any kind of outdoor adventuring or backpacking or, you know, if you go into the wilderness, there's there's regulations. It's for your own good. Do we trust the regulations that God has given? And, you know, ultimately, the Lord is present with the Israelites in the wilderness. He never leaves them. He never abandons them. He never forsakes them. And ultimately, he sets up his dwelling place among them. There's a reason that Psalm 23 is so popular. 
because it's so good. It's so true, and it's what we need to hear so often. Though I would walk through the valley of the wilderness, you're with me. You're with me, God. You're with me in the wilderness. You're with me in those valleys. And so I don't need to be afraid. I will fear not, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When Jesus hosted his 12 disciples for the Passover meal, he said a number of things that were very poignant and a number of things that related to this wilderness experience that the Israelites had and the wilderness experiences that you and I have. In three of our four gospel accounts, when we see Jesus gather with, uh, with his disciples, For this last meal, the Passover meal, which we're going to prepare to uh, remember in just a moment, in three of our four gospel accounts of this Passover meal, there are four verbs that are repeated. And these are no ordinary words, no ordinary verbs. Listen to these verbs. We're told that when Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples, that he took a loaf of bread. He took a loaf of bread. We're told that he blesses the loaf of bread, that he blesses it. We're told that he breaks the loaf of bread. He breaks it. And then he gives the bread. He gives the bread to those who were there. Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. Imagine the Israelites. The living God takes the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He literally takes them out. And then the living God blesses the Israelites and says, you will be my people and I will be your God. He gives them an identity, blesses them. And then the Lord allows them to be broken before him. In the wilderness, they're broken before God, and he forms them in those moments. And then the Lord gives Israel to the world as a light to the nations. He gives his people to be a conduit of blessing, a conduit of his light, to announce his reign. He gives them to the world. And now let's zoom into you. Jesus through his work on the cross, takes you out of bondage to sin. He literally reaches down into the pit out of which you could not escape, and he takes you out. That didn't come out right. He takes you out. (laughs) He takes you out of the pit. He takes you out of sin. And then he blesses you. In your baptism, he blesses you. He gives you an identity. He says, This is, no, he says, you are my daughter. You are my son. In you, I am well pleased. He blesses you in your baptism. And then he lets you be broken before him. In the wilderness, as we're formed to become who God created us to become. And then, and then he gives you to the world to be salt and light. He gives you 
to be flavor, to be a source of preservation of life, to be light in the darkness. He gives you to the world. Jesus takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpc.com.